I want you to keep it tuned right here. Up next, it's the McShank Podcast Boys, Ryan and Clayton, coming at you on KMPN in sunny Los Angeles. Welcome to MPN, a big, historic, grand moment in McShank Podcast history. Clayton, I don't know if you know this. This is the first time we're ever committing to audio our decade movie list best of. Ryan, I'm bracing myself, and I feel like we've earned it. We had, we have 10 years of podcasting about our favorite movies of the year to draw on, and how many people can say that? It's pretty amazing. Like the, the, the way that we've been able to keep this going, we haven't pissed each other off in any way to just be like, well, fuck you, I'm not doing this this year or anything. No, like, we it, stayed it, friends. At least we've... on mic, it's always playful. Oh, of course. I mean, what, we, what, what scenes, we think though. about in the dark recesses of our own <laughs> minds may be a different story, but we keep it pretty civil here. I agree. I agree. Except when we're talking about Booksmart. <laughs> so this is the, I guess, inaugural decade list 2010 to 2019 best of films list on the McShank podcast. We had talked about it briefly, but we had actually, if you go back into the Wayback machine, we actually did an episode. I think maybe it was June of 2009 ish. It was about halfway through Oh nine where we talked about things that could end up on a decade list at the end of the year. Yeah, we, we we never really uh, we never really structured it in the sense of a list, so we didn't have to really commit to anything. No, at the time. we're like, oh, here's some things that we forgot about, or here's some things that we don't want to forget about. But at the end of the day, we never really ended up doing anything with it. Like it was just not really. Sort of, it was just kind of an episode that we aired, and I think we wanted content. We just wanted to do something. <laughs> we were, and we're starving like, for content. Like, oh, we need you know, and it sounded like fun. And now, just because we didn't record it. You actually went through and actually wrote down your thoughts. I, I, I wrote a fucking book proposal in, yeah. in length for my favorite. I think I did 30 movies from 2000 to 2009. And, mm-hmm. and my, my movie going diet in those earlier years in that decade where, you know, I was still coming into my own as a movie lover and what I find interesting in movies. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I think my list from that decade will be starkly <laughs> different maybe yeah. from my list this decade. Yeah. But I actually, I never really thought about it much after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm ready to announce my number one movie of the 2009, 2000 to 2009 was probably The Dark Knight. I mean, like, <laughs> does that make up for it? Or? God damn it. You found a way around my defenses. I will forgive your 2008 oversight and grant you this decade pick. Well done, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so many people to thank. Well uh, fucking done. Christopher Nolan, <laughs> Heath Ledger. <laughs> yeah. So I think with this list, I'd say a majority of these films we've talked about in one way or another in our different various top 10 podcasts. I know mine for sure. They come from various lists and things like that. So I think that rather than maybe discussing the finer points of each one, we can kind of use this time to sort of appreciate and sort of make it about why we like these movies and what they meant to us. Maybe I have some notes about like what was going on at the time or, you know, the, the circumstances around seeing the movie and um, the experience of it. And so it doesn't have to necessarily be because we can talk about lighting and acting and all that stuff till the cows come home. There's going to be some 
some definite pleasures in the movie that we can't get through without without talking about it. I feel yeah. like I have a feeling maybe in one or two occasions we'll have some overlap, but I think for the most part our lists are going to be pretty unique. I think so too, and that's exciting. That's good. Mm-hmm. I because I, I'm curious. I tried to do. I went through on Wikipedia. And I basically pulled up the year in film. Exactly what I did. Each year. And yeah. it was just like... I didn't want to miss anything. Yeah, I just got to mark down like all of the things that could make it on. I, so I probably went from a list of 15 or 10 or 15 in a particular year to then I had to go from a list of like to two. I had to go down like yeah. maybe one, maybe two every year. And then from there, make more cuts and go and go and go. It was... We talked about it off mic and a little bit on. It was tough. This was a hard... Thing. And now, like, it's all relative, of course. We're not doing manual labor here. Well, you're talking about hundreds of movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you're, you're probably even more prolific moviegoer than I am, and that's saying something. And there is at least, I think, for me at least, 60 to 75 new movies per year that I've probably seen that I have to whittle down. And the fun of the list, I think, was uh, including movies that, I loved, but I didn't see in time for the podcast, so I couldn't mention it and never made my list. But I saw maybe a 2010 movie in 2015 for the first time and said to myself, holy shit, this would have made my list and maybe would have been number one on my list that year. So getting to finally make amends for some of those oversights is what really excited me about this. Mm-hmm. And also getting back to the Wikipedia methodology yeah. you were talking about. That was great, and I found the one limitation was I could not rely on it for foreign films. Yes, because it was just U.S. films. And I was like, unless, wait a minute, I know, unless I remember The foreign movie got a big U.S. release, it probably wasn't going to show up on that list. So mm-hmm. then I had to go into the top 10 list records I have going back X, you know, X amount of years, 10 years, and, and make sure there was nothing I was overlooking there potentially anything i've reviewed a movie on in the past if i've kept a movie journal what have i seen because there's just some things that were gonna escape your attention that you would have wanted to include and that's the type of work that we're putting in for this this is the sweat and the work we don't get paid for this we don't get paid to do this type of work we don't get paid to sit on our asses and look at wikipedia for hours on end while we try to cross reference it with things that we may have discussed or we're may in not for have the discussed. love of the game McCarran. that's it and it was super fun to make this list and um so yeah so i, I think if you if we go into it maybe not necessarily because you can hear our words on a lot of these films, if not all of them from before. So um, you can go back and listen to those podcasts. Uh, we're not really going to recap or rehash a lot of the stuff that we've talked about, but some of it will be. But I, but I definitely didn't want this to be was just a regurgitation of our number one movies from every year. And I, I just want to be honest with myself about it. And if that's how it worked out, then great. That was my list, you know, but I, I was happy to find out that, certain movies that maybe weren't weren't on my list at the time or that were further down on my list have increased in resonance for me over those 10 years. And they now occupy a much more favorable position in my mind. And so I can actually give them their due here. So it's been a long time coming and I'm still terrified, Ryan. Are you? There's a palpable sense of dread. Well, the the recording (laughs) is already on, so there's nothing you can, I guess we just got to fucking just got to get into it, get into it. Let's talk about some movies, the best movies, according to us. Yep. For the years, 2010 to 2019. And this list is invaluable and Mm. it is not to be questioned. So these are the 10 to 20 best movies of the decade. Don't let anybody tell you any differently. (laughs) Anybody who thinks they have the right idea for a list. No, you don't. 
No. Quick question before we start. Yeah. Did you have, I don't want to know the year, but did you have a year where you had a couple, is everything pretty well spread out Spread for out you, over the years. Are you concentrated in a couple or, like, again, I, I don't want to know the years because yeah, yeah, we yeah. don't know each other's lists, of course. It's very, it's, it's pleasingly distributed. So is mine. According to the years. I think I have two years that, were the most potent representation and that was maybe two a piece. Okay. So it's a pretty good spread throughout yeah. the years. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it'd be interesting to talk about at some point what we thought was the strongest year of the decade and uh, just what that conversation would lead to. But in terms of the top 10 films, it's uh, it's a nice, uh, it's not really trickle down, Ryan. It's no. more, <laughs> it's, it's more commie socialism with me. That's right. It's the socialist list that we want democratic democratic socialism excuse me there's a big difference there's a big difference okay now that we've faffed around enough clayton you want to start it off what's your number 10 i'm going to catapult us right in here my number 10 is i think i couldn't find my list from that year but i think it was my number four or five film from 2014 if you're going to, sorry, if you're mm-hmm. going to, are you doing this for all of them? Because I don't remember where a lot of this stuff landed on my list. Just what I remember. Okay, I, just, oh, I, I, I didn't want I did, there to be a, I didn't a actually, standard that no, I couldn't no, 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 reach. No. I actually didn't look this up. I just, I have a weird memory for things like this. I, I think I've remembered some things on your list from a year when you couldn't remember. So You absolutely have. That's, yeah. just, that's just the way my mind works. So Okay, um, continue. Yes, my number uh, four or five from 2014, which has obviously increased in my estimation in the intervening years is the movie Phoenix. Oh, this is a German film from director Christian Petzold. And what struck me about it, it's kind of an outlier on my list. It where a lot of the movies on my list kind of focus on, I was trying to look for running themes, right? Where Mm -hmm. what it means to be human is kind of a big thing on my list that unintentionally just surfaced as a preoccupation of mine. And this movie was kind of an outlier in the sense that it's not really about that, but it's more about the collective social conscience of a place. And one of the things we don't really get in World War II movies very much is, for one, a a perspective from the German side, which this movie gives us, but it's post-World War II. And it really focuses on, I guess you would say it's the subtext, it focuses on how Germany got on after all the bombs had dropped, after the camps had been liberated. And what you still have is kind of a society at war with itself in a sense where you have survivors from the camps now coming back. You have people who are still Nazi sympathizers. You have, I don't know, fucking actual Nazis for all we knew. And now they kind of have to coexist again. And what is that like? And this movie is, it can be written kind of as a metaphor in that way. But what I love about it so much is it's, it's the kind of movie that I think Hitchcock would have loved. It's, kind of a hall of shattered mirrors experience is is what I've heard it reduced as. It's like a a study in identity. So it focuses on Nina Haas, who is a a muse of Christian Petzold. And she's a survivor of the camp. She survived like a a bullet to the head. And she had to get her face reconstructed uh, with plastic surgery because she was so disfigured. And she is basically not recognizable as her former self anymore. And she has a husband behind um, who was not uh, t- taken to the camps. He was a genteel. And she tries to reconnect with him until it's made clear to her, at least in the eyes of one of her friends, that her husband probably was the one who actually betrayed her to the Nazis. 
and she meets up with her husband. He doesn't recognize her, but then he sees an opportunity in her. He thinks he might, she might look enough like his old wife to actually bring her into a scheme where he can dress her up like his wife and use her to collect his wife's inheritance. And so basically this character ends up having to play herself hmm. to her husband and she doesn't want to out it because she wants to see if he actually betrayed her or not. So there's a really fascinating study of identity going on here. And I kind of want to leave the rest of it to people who haven't seen it. It was probably under the radar, but it leads to this powerhouse finale, which I said at the time, and I still think it it's, it's, it's on my all time ending list. Like if we were doing a top 10 all time endings in movies, this would have a place somewhere on that list for me. It is a, a moment of reconciliation where all the cards are on the table and this character just unleashes who she really is to people who have no reason to suspect what she is. And it's in the most shattering way I've seen in a long time. I remember you discussing it. Yeah. It's, it's only increased in my estimation. I would recommend it. Um, Phoenix is my number 10. All right. So we're, we're one film in already and I'm already going to cheat a little bit. God damn it. I know. I know. I know. How, 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 how drastic of a cheat are we talking about here? Um, like an A and a B thing? No. Well, I'll just tell you. It, but after this, a though. A tie? <laughs> no, it's not. It's, it, 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 it is and it isn't. Because there's no more, like, there won't be any more Baroga-esque Baroga's rearing his head right now. Same. There won't be any of them. Because my number 10 movie is Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol slash Rogue Nation slash Fallout. <laughs> okay. All out. I couldn't. I just all couldn't out. choose. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So they're all, they're all of a piece. I, I really wanted, I really wanted to honor the series in some way because, and these were the three of them that came out this particular decade: it was Ghost Protocol twenty eleven, Rogue Nation fifteen, Fallout and eighteen. Um, it, it really was the most fun and rewatchable action movies of the decade, and that does include the Fast and Furious movies as well. But this one, I think, is is a cut above it. And I don't want to. I'm not going to talk about each of them individually. Only to say that I love the idea of. Nobody asking Tom Cruise to almost kill himself multiple times in escalating fashion over multiple films. He chose to do that on his own, and they're all the better and more affecting because of it. Like, Completely agree. Suction cupping his way up the Burj Khalifa to hanging off the side of an airplane that's just taken off to him jumping out of an airplane and flying a helicopter. These films just, just took my breath away all the time. Speaking of take my breath away, guess what other Tom Cruise re- vehicle is resurrected this year? Oh, Top Days of Thunder? Gun Maverick. Oh, yes. Yes. He will take our breath away once again. Yeah. Did you uh, hear that I saw that? What? Top Gun? You son of a bitch. Yeah, I saw it like two years ago. All right, we'll sidebar it. Okay. <laughs> this is... The, the, these what movies... the fuck? Two years ago? Yeah. <laughs> That's impossible. <laughs> and I didn't tell you specifically for this particular interaction is because I wanted you, I wanted to say, Oh yeah, I just saw it like a while ago. You can feel my face palm <laughs> on the other end of the line. I'm sure. <laughs> oh, this is working out perfectly. Continue. You okay. fucking turncoat. So it's not just mindless action either. Would you agree? No, no. I feel like you could get away with it. It's like you... watching a, a conductor conduct an orchestra. Oh, it's, it's incredible. I mean, the, the directing duo of Brad Bird for Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation with Christopher McQuarrie and Fallout with him as well, you could just tell that they're a labor of love for all of them, especially the, the, the last couple with Cruz and McQuarrie. I mean, they're such 
great collaborators. There's really no telling how far they can go in the future. But something interesting that I think about while watching them is that the amazing stunts in the, in the films, right? All done in person, you know, maybe there's a tiny bit of CGI to fill in some stuff, but generally he is hanging off the side of that building. He is hanging onto an airplane and he is jumping out and doing a halo jump. But I think this is the worst byproduct of CGI and visual effects. And I know you work in visual effects, but hear me out. I, I, you, I'll, I'll be the first person to criticize <laughs> visual effects. If you didn't know that Tom Cruise like actually jumped out of that airplane or if that he learned to fly a helicopter by training 16 hours a day for three months, you would just sort of assume there was some visual effects help in when you're watching the films. Because it's you're just like, well, nobody would do this. Who would do That's this? That's a product of a bygone era. Yeah. and But the fact that it is, it, it's just so mind-blowing, the fact that he's able to do these things so incredibly. And apparently not age while... In the, proce- Ever. in the process of Ever. it. Ever. Well, you lose all those thetans. That's what that's what it is. Once <laughs> you go clear, that's you look great. Well, yeah, speaking of that, sorry, quick digression. Sure. I think Tom Cruise, because of his public persona and his ties to certain religions we mm-hmm. won't name, in the end is going to have a lot to answer for. <laughs> really? But there is no disputing his wattage as a movie star. And the work ethic, and he's kind of a part of a dying breed. I mean, Brad Pitt, maybe Tom Cruise, you know, like these people who can still draw names based on their star power alone mm-hmm. and what they are guaranteed to bring to a project. And he's a part of a dwindling list. I think, yeah, he's probably top of the list right there. Uh, but the fact that he still decides to do these types of projects and put his body through what he has to go through to get ready for these movies and the fil- the filming of these movies and genuinely seems to enjoy it and keeps going back to it. Maybe he's a little bit crazy because of it, but the films are all that better for it. And so I, that's why I wanted to just, I didn't want a single one of them out. Uh, so that's that, was, that, them all that was kind of where the series turned, right? It was ghost protocol because mm-hmm. mission Impossible three was enjoyable enough. And you had a pretty fun performance from Hoffman in there. And protocol is where it found its footing. Mm-hmm. But I still love Mission Impossible one. I, think I love the second one actually. You oh, you're an outlier I there. I really like the okay. second one. Yeah, I had a lot. I yeah. Okay. So I've I mean yeah, and I totally agree with you about three. It's yeah. It's, it's like fine. It, it's it's definitely watchable. It's it's a it's a work of a consummate professional, but it doesn't have the draw that these later movies had, where mm-hmm. it really found out what series it wanted to be. So that's my number 10, that group of uh, wonderful action films. I'll allow it. I just don't want to see anything like that again. (laughs) (laughs) I'll allow it, but watch yourself, counselor. (laughs) Watch your step. Uh, So my number nine is going to be the first instance where I could not leave off a number one film Mm. for my my list. Technically released in 2014, but not stateside until 2015. It definitely fits into that theme that I discussed earlier about what it means to be human. And uh, that being said, my number nine is Ex Machina from director Alex Garland, which I still think is a science fiction masterpiece and is only going to become more relevant with each passing year as all these conversations about AI start to happen. Not even about this whole thing about the singularity, which a lot of philosophers really are struggling with and trying to warn us of the potential danger of but more even in terms of just like automation you know where suddenly all these machines are going to probably start taking jobs i know like 
Andrew Yang is a big, uh, big advocate of this conversation right now. And this movie is only going to, I think, get richer as time goes on. And what I love so much about it is at its core, it's about the difference between artifice and human flesh. You know, where, what is the real line there? Like, where do we sign off on something that is indeed human? Like where, where are those boundaries? And with Alicia Vikander's character, Ava in this movie, I think Garland gives us the best vision of where that could potentially go in the near term in terms of like, you, you know, anthropomorphizing the concept of AI, like it's an actual physical body in terms of a, a Skynet kind of thing that the, the Terminator franchise would give us. And the story that he frames this, this uh, artificial intelligence question in and is something that I constantly think about and I just constantly smile. It's got a great trifecta of a cast. Donald Gleason, who's becoming a name that will, if he's not already, will be a household name soon. Oscar Isaac, who is just one of the best things going right now in movies. And it has them all in this dance where you're not always sure what cards the characters are playing, what their ambitions are. Things are on the, things on the surface don't tend to be what is simmering beneath the surface. Uh, Sometimes it's a literal <laughs> dance. It is, a, it is a literal dance. And when I said smiling, I cannot get Oscar Isaac's dance out of my head to this day. We talked about it four or five years ago, and I still think about it. <laughs> like it's just, it is such a delight, and comes out of nowhere in a movie that mostly is trying to take itself seriously at that point. And Oscar Isaac just busts a fucking move for about twenty or thirty seconds. Thing of joy. I mean, it's Alex Garland kind of smiling at the audience, winking, saying that he knows. You know, we're mostly being serious here, but we're also trying to have fun at the same time. I, I thought the beauty of Ava's character was profound and still resonates with me to this day, especially when you think about where the character goes and you know the fact that she could be walking amongst us right now and we'd probably never, never know, know. It, never know it. So Ex Machina, I think, in terms of its purchase on where we're going as a culture technologically is, like I said, something that will just increase in significance. So that's my number nine. My number nine is also, I guess... Maybe not dealing with who are we as humans, but sort of a, I don't know. I'm not even really going to try to draw really. It's Inception. Ah, yeah. Yeah. And honestly, it became a very close call between that and Interstellar. Close enough that I considered breaking the rules yet again. And uh, I think lumping by the hair, together. I think by the hair, I, I think you made the right call. Yeah, it's very, very close. Now, I, because you could, I mean, really, you could argue that the decade belonged to Chris Nolan anyway. I mean, with this movie... Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, and Dunkirk. I know you and I would argue that any decade that he's working might belong to him, but I know that's just us. Mm -hmm. But we saw this back, and we saw it at midnight, back when midnight movies were still a thing, when we were, could still stay up for them, and <laughs> we could still, and they still had them pretty much. But I feel like we, there was a buzz in the air really before we knew kind of what it was about. We knew it had an amazing cast, trippy special effects. And that he was selfishly annoying this and uh, directing this instead of giving us more Batman. Um, but as the movie unfolded, that buzz turned into a roar. As the movie, it bent our minds. It made us question our reality within the movie, not feel like we could trust our own minds or our own eyes or the movie that we were watching. We all watched as 
he spun a room 360 degrees to film a fight scene with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Hans Zimmer's score just like punctuating every single blow and we saw it again and we needed to figure out that what we saw was what we saw and talk about it and go over the whole you know reality of it but the cheer and the gasp that went up when the screen <laughs> faded to black was something totally It's still palpable. I can still feel it. Oh, I just know that it's just like it's like when you haven't breathed and you take in a breath. It's just that's what it felt like. The whole audience just did that. Um, it was completely unforgettable. I mean, every every portion of the movie is fun and interesting from the standpoint of I mean the plot, the characters, the action, and I think it's really a Chris Nolan special that I think he's seems like he might be getting back to with this year's tenant, but it's high concept stuff in the wrapper of a summer movie. Yeah. It's wrapped up as this popcorn fun and, you know, but there's so much more to it when you actually just, just peek a little bit below the surface of what it does well. So, um, again, interstellar, sorry to leave you off because that was a whole theater experience on, on its own. But, uh, inceptions by number nine. And I think that, the theater experience with a Christopher Nolan movie is, you know, we could honestly we could go on and on about it, but about him and well, I don't. They're, they're we've talked about experience. him enough, but I don't. Yeah. Yes, they are. They, they uh, I mean, you get the feeling that you're watching somebody who is holding you in the palm of their hand, and they know exactly what they're doing, and you know the results may vary for you, but you never get the sense you're not being led toward this destination by somebody who is being thoughtless or who is hasn't considered every chess move you know and the con the movies are just so high concept that not many directors are even allowed to play in that playground yeah and in, in that sandbox and he's he he's kind of cornered the market but it's film it's films that are made by someone who understands the experience of seeing something in the theater and this the the communal aspect of it and what everybody you know everybody sharing the same the same moment at the same time and how powerful that can be um, and, uh, so that's what we had with Inception and that one really stuck with me and I watched that 360 fight again and it's still <laughs> really, really, really good. Until it was, until it was leaked online, the, the set that contained that set, that action set piece, no one really knew how he did it. I mean, there was speculation and it was just such an, a, a quite literally upending experience watching it and just the mechanics of how he was pulling it off and, it was it was it was one of those rare instances of movie magic where you're you're really you haven't seen something before and now you have and it's kind of a benchmark for everything that follows so yeah uh, inception uh was definitely a landmark film this decade and gave us that uh now annual doom mm-hmm. in every trailer it yeah. seems like that started with that movie <laughs> yeah. you know and and it was the most tantalizing trailer and yeah it's definitely delivered in spades uh, we on to our number eight movie of the decade. So my number eight is actually, it's another number one film. It comes to us from two years ago, 2017. And again, cannot get the Cheshire cat smile off my face whenever I think about this movie. It is from Luca Guadagnino and it's Call Me By Your Name. I, I waxed poetic enough while we were talking about it that year, but... It's just, it's like first love on a lazy, warm Italian summer day. It's like drifting into that space and living there for two hours. 
a young, a 17-year-old played by the now ubiquitous Timothy Chalamet. And I, God damn you, Timothy Chalamet. You're just, yeah, he's you're, crushing. You're so fucking good. Yeah. And you fucking know it. And he's so <laughs> young. And I mean, even in, you know, Little Women, a movie that didn't come up on our, our top 10 podcast this year. It, I just love seeing this kid now in anything he does because he brings such a swagger and a confidence to it. But here he plays a 17-year-old who is in the grips of his coming of age sexuality years. Like he's just figuring out what, what he's into, where he fits into this, uh, this burgeoning sexual landscape. And the, the odyssey is triggered by the delightful army hammers entrance into the movie who is kind of a, a research student that his dad is um, taking under his wing that particular summer. And uh, I think it's set in the, the early eighties and he's lovingly referred to as the usurper at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> Uh, but their just their cat and mouse kind of flirtation period is so exquisitely balanced and developed. And I think in particular, there is a kind of a, a not a seduction sequence, but it's yeah, it's it's more of their their flirtation where it's this extended take and re- revolving around the fountain in the middle of this public square. It's all shot in one glorious extended long take and. It just basically revolves around there's conversation on the surface of it, but it's more about the body language and it's more about the the glances here and there where they're just kind of checking each other out. And it just has that exquisite feeling of of first love and all the the wonderful things that come with that. And and the movie uh, based on, the, I think, the source material by the same name, which I haven't read, unfortunately, but it takes you to that that inevitable conclusion where first loves rarely work out. Mm-hmm. And we just get the most beautifully drawn portrait of that sense of withdrawal and the, the heartbreak and just being crushed. And it's all just played off to a T and, and acted brilliantly by Chalamet. And I think Michael Stuhlbarg has a great supporting performance in there. As oh, his, the, his, his, his scene, his at monologue, the end. Oh, his monologue at the end was probably my favorite piece it, of acting from that year. Uh, incredibly touching. And thankfully for this, a Chalamet character, Elio, it's incredibly supportive at a time when most parents probably would not have been. And most parents probably still aren't now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, because it tackles these things of love won and love lost and that initial reckoning with who you are in this domain of your life, it, it just left an indelible stamp on me. And I, I will preach the gospel, the gospel of this movie to the end of the earth. So, uh, number eight, I'm sticking with the the majesty of Call Me By Your Name. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful film. And I think the best thing that it has going for it is that you don't think of it, and I think mo- like I think it, it shares this in common with Brokeback Mountain where they're both quote-unquote gay love stories. But the gay aspect of it, I don't feel like is even a thing. I feel like you can, I don't want to say forget about it, but it is, th- these are just stories of love. Like they're just stories of people who are falling in love with other people and whether it's two men or two women or a man and a woman, it's just, it, it doesn't seem to really matter. And it, it doesn't hang over the film. I feel like in a, in a negative way and it doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that it's more about the story of just a love and a relationship rather than like a gay love story or yeah. a gay cowboy movie or whatever. Like it's, it's easy to just sort of put it in those boxes, but, mm-hmm. um, it's a very uh, tender and emotional and beautifully shot film. Like, movie shot in Italy, I'm all on board with, really. No, it's yeah, just picturesque. I, I think at the time I described it as stepping into a painting and just walking around for two hours. It just, it, it has that utopian kind of 
lazy, drawn out days in the sun kind of appeal in where it's just like you're just living in a warm blanket for two hours watching a movie in the best possible connotation of that. So yeah, and it also introduced the uh, the psychedelic furs to me with their oh. with their immortal song uh, "Hold Me Now," "Love My Way." Oh, love that, my way. Uh, yeah, there you go. That I uh, I don't I probably don't go a week without listening to. So great. Uh, yeah. All right. Your number eight. Eight. So my number eight is also my number number one, and one that I had put number one back in 2013, but then hadn't really gone back to at all and it's short term 12 so i actually rewatched it a couple of weeks back just because i i there was some i felt like maybe were on the cusp maybe stuff that had come out earlier that we hadn't i hadn't watched in a while and i wanted to see if it still had the same effect on me if it still you know was as good as i remember and this was one that I was secretly in the back of my mind hoping would still be good because I just remember loving it yeah. at the time. And uh, guess what? I still love it. It's still great. It's, um, it's fantastic. I, I love this movie. And I think that this movie, if you try to weave it in to the decade, for me, a lot of this decade actually had to do uh, sort of centered around movie pass. <laughs> you can think about it. You know, like it, and I think that it... May it rest in peace. I know. Well, they were... they did horrible, made horrible decisions and killed themselves. But, but I think that the, I think the main reason why I saw this movie was because I had movie pass. And so it was like, we probably saw something on rotten tomatoes about it or something that had a high rotten tomato score or someone had talked about it on a podcast, but it was in passing. I don't even remember seeing a trailer for it. It was just like, we have this thing. Let's try to use it. Let's go and check it out. We'll go to our local theater right here. And it was just, I mean, we just blown, we blown away by it. I mean, it basically rode the momentum in my brain from August when it came out all the way to the end of the year when it was my number one movie. So if we talked about To Call Me By Your Name being a tender film, this is a very tender, but also realistic films. I, I forgot that the, the sort of unexpected directions that it went in, that it took, un, maybe unconventional storytelling, but it's incredibly sweet, incredibly visceral as well. Um, it is funny to look at the cast from back then to now. And there's it's like a lot a, of, uh, stars in there. Now, it's a who's there? who like of recognizable people, like two Oscar winners, Rami Malek and Brie Larson. One of the best, best glue guys in Hollywood, Lakeith Stanfield mm-hmm. who back then was just Keith Stanfield and Caitlin Devers, who we talked about in, uh, yeah, in I Book forgot Smart. she was in, I'm looking at yeah. the cast right now. Yeah. I forgot about her and don't sleep on John Gallagher jr. Either. He's no. awesome in the newsroom and he's mm-hmm. great in this movie as sort of a foil to, Brie Larson's character. Um, Destin Daniel Cretton is the talented writer-director who made this film. He kind of announces a presence with authority, so much so that... Bringing the heater. <laughs> I haven't seen any of his other films after this, frankly. <laughs> I, did, I, I, did, I did see Just Mercy that came out this oh, year. Oh, you did? Okay, yeah, that one, movie, yeah. I still haven't seen that one. That was like the one that I kind of maybe would have had a chance to watch, but yeah. I but didn't it, see that it, one. It's, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's eminently watchable and professionally done, but mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's nowhere in the same ballpark yeah. as this movie. So it's a simple overarching story with so many little pieces in it between it that are complex. So I think the, if you just laid it out on a, on a, you know, from front, from start to finish, it would just look pretty simple, but the devil is kind of in the details with this. Like every emotional beat hit perfectly. Um, the acting is, is great. It's, it's got a very gritty directoral handheld camera feel to it that I think adds a lot to it. 
Uh, it's a movie that I, I, again, I mentioned I probably wouldn't have seen had I not had Movie Pass, and here we are. It's included in one of my top ten of the decade. So. Yeah, I remember I was in for something special watching this movie, I think within the first ten minutes after that first scene, because this movie has bookends, and it sneaks up on you in a way where you don't know you're watching a bookend, obviously, till the very, mm-hmm. the very end of the movie, and then the the culminating part of this of this duo starts happening and you reframe and recontextualize everything that you've seen before and it feels just so of a piece now and the way that he utilizes slow motion in these bookends are are just quite quite frankly moving and mm-hmm. and it it just it just makes you feel like you've seen something special when and it's one of those little movies that just comes out once in a great while that reminds you that Hollywood isn't everything and there are other places to look for these films that remind you why you love movies mm-hmm. and uh, and then it's exhilarating when you do find these movies because then you get to preach the gospel mm-hmm. to everyone else who has not heard of it yeah. and be that guy who introduces Champions it. somebody to yeah. a great film they would have never seen yeah so uh, yeah loved it completely on the same page with you there let's do it my number seven film is the first time when on this list you'll see something that hasn't appeared in a previous list Ooh, a new one. Uh, and, and it's because I saw this movie about two days after we did last year's podcast for the top 10. And right after I saw it, I was slamming my head against the wall <laughs> for waiting those two days because it would have been my number one film of the year. And that would, of course, mean uncoronating Roma, <laughs> which I loved Roma to death. And yeah. it, it hurts me to say it. But when I saw the South Korean film Burning for the first time, Two year again, two days after we did, <sighs> we, we did our review, it is it's again another South Korean movie. It's it's going to be a, a thing I think going forward. There's just some stellar work coming out of here. But the film by Lee Chang Dong is it's a mystery in the best sense of the word, in the best sense that cinema has t- to offer. Like you know, Knives Out is a mystery, but this is a mystery. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's it's no, no disrespect to Knives Out, but this is like. This is the kind of movie that just leaves you lingering with possibilities and alternate explanations and you're dying to revisit it because there's some clue that could have point that may point you toward something that's more likely as opposed to less likely. Uh, but it just leaves your mind churning with questions and analysis for days and just weeks after you see it. It it centers on a boy named Jong Su who bumps into this girl named Jaime, she's this free spirit that he used to go to school with. There's an initial recognition there. He becomes infatuated with her, and they start a a quick romance. And one day, she asks him to watch her cat. A cat, for some reason, factors greatly into this movie. She asks him to watch her cat while she goes on holiday. And when she returns from holiday, she she returns with a mysterious, wealthy new boyfriend, played by Stephen Yen of uh, The Walking Dead fame. If you wanted to see Stephen Yen in, in a movie that or in something that doesn't require him running from zombies, this is the movie for you, because he's incredible. Uh, they become ensnared in this odd kind of love triangle of sorts until the mystery of the movie really kicks into gear. And in one of the most indelible images and sequences of this entire decade, we come to a scene where the three are kind of, they're in this day-to-day existence where they're hanging out, but there's this unspoken tension between all of them. And they're actually hanging out at this place around Sunset that uh, belongs, I think, to the uh, the Stephen Yen character, more of an upper-class character. It's 
very interestingly, right near the DMZ, which separates South Korea from North Korea. So there's actually a, a lot of sly political context going on. But they're out, they're out there. They're having a beer. They're watching the sun go down. And then Jaime, the object of both of their affection, she just stands up, goes topless, and just does this transfixing hypnotic dance, just this dance of reckless abandon, a free spirit. And when she starts this, what slowly fades in is the most lovely, um, the most lovely Miles Davis, Miles Davis tune, which just adds this poetic free form kind of feel to the whole scene. She's doing this silhouetted against the, the purples and oranges of the sunset. And after a while, the music just fades away and she's just doing it to utter silence. And it's one of the most hypnotic and mesmerizing things I saw in the last 10 years. And at this moment we fade out and that's where the, actually the real mystery of the movie sets in because the next day she's gone. She's vanished. The, the question of what becomes of her is, is the central crux of the film and Jong Su's relentless obsession with her. There's so many possibilities here. You know, did the Steven, did the Steven Yen character kill her? The, you know, the wealthy elitist upper class guy, did he kill her? Did she vanish of her own free will? everything and everyone is suspect and a facial tick here or a glance given by some character during Jong Su's investigation could be evidence of everything or could be evidence of absolutely nothing. And the many possible answers of the mystery converge on a scene of shocking violence, which somehow only introduces more questions than it actually answers. So burning is an apt name for this movie because what is and what could be just linger long after the closing credits so if you want to see a mystery in the truest deepest sense of the word check out this korean film from last year yeah i uh, you, you really sold me on it i'm looking at the poster and the mm -hmm. imdb page on it it looks intriguing if i could revise history which i'm not a fan of doing not have to do it would be my number one film of 2018, but alas, right. it is my number seven of the decade. Okay, well, that's just, <laughs> I think I made up for it. Just a slight uh, <laughs> consolation prize, <laughs> I guess. Uh, well, my number seven is another number one. I went about half and half with number ones uh, of my uh, on on my top ten list, and then about half off of it. Uh, but it's Drive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, another one that actually just rewatched it probably oof, like a week ago mm -hmm. i want to say and i'm really just i'm just glad that this movie exists really it's it's sort of the perfect encapsulation of nicholas winding reffin's ness yeah. i think like if that's that's the really only word i can get away i, I can really <laughs> go for it just his his this his his ness his his, his whatever he the has perfect coalescing of all his gifts as a yeah I, he kind of got a little too far away from it with only God forgives and yeah. a little less with the neon demon. But mm -hmm. this is the movie that harnesses, I think what he does best. And that's crafting tension. The cinematography is flashy, the harmony of the music with the action, the dialogue. Um, and I just remember seeing it in the theaters, being really excited about it. And then feeling kind of bad for people who saw this opening weekend thinking that it was like another fast and furious movie. And they would probably thought they made the right call. And after the opening sequence, after those first five minutes where we see Ryan Gosling's driver character in action as the getaway driver, evading the police, speeding around corners, trying to 
basically get to safety or get these crooks to safety, essentially. Um, but hey, instead, what they got was a postmodern superhero story that is more <laughs> quiet than loud and has a lead that says a handful of words. So that's <laughs> sort of really just that's the all of it. I hope they enjoyed it. But uh, the song choices in the movie are just perfect. There's some indie songs that just get stuck in your brain. And the score from Cliff Martinez. Everybody bought that soundtrack oh, after the movie. Absolutely wonderful. It's it's like a techno Daft Punk inspired. A lot of people thing. I know love the soundtrack more than the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Fair potentially. Yeah, no, I no, think so. no, no knock against the movie. No, yeah, it's, it's just, just an amazing, a great soundtrack. score soundtrack. Yeah, and I think and rewatching it, it was really interesting. What I was able to the glean from it is that part of that great cinematography is the way it plays with the shadow and the lighting. Now his Gosling's character is constantly seen with his shadow. Really, there's hmm. there, there are specific moments where they, he holds on the shadow after Gosling leaves the leaves the, the the frame, and even the whole turning point of the film at the very end is shot from the point of view of a shadow. You don't actually see a lot of the action, but the tussle that occurs between him and Albert Brooks and the Chinese food parking lot yeah. is all from shadow. So it's That's just right, yeah. it's just the shadow itself. It's mm-hmm. like it's almost like he there's always this thing hanging over him that he just can't shake and that's just his this life of crime that he just is is involved in mm-hmm. he has this life where he is this mild-mannered very quiet soft-spoken car mechanic who's just trying to get by in the Los Angeles and whatever he's very you yeah. probably say he's very plain, mm-hmm. even though he looks like Ryan Gosling. But <laughs> like, that's why I had trouble buying Brad Pitt in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Is like, yeah. this guy obviously looks like a lead actor. He's not. Yeah. He's not. He's not like. Aren't a you stunt pretty actor. for a stuntman? He's prettier yeah. than Leonardo DiCaprio is, and that's saying right. a lot. So, yeah. But, yeah. but there's always that other element of this other life that he has when he turns into somebody else, and it's just always with him. So I thought that was interesting that they focused a lot on that. And there's always lots of moments where he's just driving and it's a shot from uh, uh, from beneath sort of looking up at him. And there are different times when the lighting makes like a mask on his eyes. So he'll drive under Mm. like an overpass and then it'll go dark for a moment. It'll come out and then the lighting will make it look like he's wearing uh, an eye mask almost like he is the hero of the of the story, really like superhero status that he gets. But. Again, another another cast where it's just an amazing cast. I, I forgot Ron Perlman was in this movie. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Brian Cranston, Albert Brooks, a less famous Oscar Isaac. Probably the Carrie the Mulligan. Big, remember the biggest Oscar snub that year? I think it was Albert Brooks. Yeah, is what most people thought. I think most people. Yeah, and it because he's wonderful in it. So, mm-hmm. and I had it. I had it lower when I was thinking about the list, and I wasn't sure if it made the cut. And I and I luckily. Would, own it on blu-ray i was able to watch it again yeah and uh so it's definitely on here it rose up the ranks it just it still kicks ass man it's still mm. so so good and such it hits such great emotional beats with carrie mulligan and oscar isaac mm. and him and their relationship and yeah yeah uh, i loved it uh again. it was it was um uh, what the hell is Oscar Isaac's name in this movie? Uh, it was something funny standard standard yeah where's the deluxe version mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah uh the first 15 minutes of drive speak to how creatively I don't want to say bankrupt, but how creatively lacking the fast and the furious movies are. The first mission in this movie is the antithesis of the fast and furious films. It's all about suspense. It's about 
cunning using your using your brain to outsmart the people tailing you and that might involve just quickly veering to the curb and turning your headlights off you know when the police are starting to come up come into vision on the other side of the street parking under an overpass parking under an overpass yeah, yeah it's it's outsmarting the people after you not out racing the people after you and now there's a well, pl- I'm going to play I think there's a time and a place for each of them there is but I think that but, yes. But, but when it comes down to what you really want to see in a movie that kind of leaves you reeling, I think. I think the former is what I always gravitate to because just something as simple as, yeah, pulling over and turning the lights off. Yeah, how would the cop see you in that moment? Mm-hmm. And he has the wherewithal as this moonlight moonlighting driver to to have that skill set and to know how to evade someone who would normally, you know, catch them if it was mm-hmm. somebody lesser experienced and uh, my number 10 film of 2011, your number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I do remember, actually. Yes. And I will say, it is the only film that you will see on this list that has a famous driver on it. <laughs> That's not true. We'll, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, are we on to number six? I made a joke there, and I didn't even realize it. But anyway, <laughs> we'll figure it out here in a second. We'll figure it out. Yeah, okay. I know. You'll, you'll understand what I mean in a moment. <laughs> Will I? You will. You will. You will. And I'll, and you'll, we'll, I'll tell you all about it. All right. Okay. Because it seems like it's hanging out there in the McCarran ether. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to grab it. McEther. The McEther. There you go. Uh, my number six film of the decade is, uh, again, a number one film. And I think, yeah, we're not going to encounter too many of those on the rest of the trip. I'm just, <laughs> just scrolling through my list okay. right now. But uh, my number one, or excuse me, my number six film of the decade is my number one film of 2013. And it's actually just a a perfect coupling with Call Me By Your Name. It is blue is the warmest color. Mm. Or if it's if you want to go by the French version, it's based off of it's called La Vie d'Adèle, Chapitre en et And this movie is it won the Palme d'Or in 2013, and it was followed by a lightning rod of controversy. Just based really, on, <laughs> just based on the <laughs> graphicness of the sex scenes and the the vigor with which they are realized in seemingly real time. But for me, this is the ultimate first love and love lost experience of the 2010s. Again, another sexual coming of age story. And this one just crackles with a crude wisdom and sexual and dramatic energy. Uh, Adele X. Arcoupolis and Leah Seydoux play the, the titular duo and they're just nothing short of miraculous. It's hard to imagine an actor being more vulnerable than they are in this movie. And it's almost uh, its own version of a superhero film. Uh, but this is in the end, XR Kupolis's movie because the camera is on her nonstop for about three hours. So if you don't find her appealing, it's going to be a long fucking movie for you. <laughs> and uh, I venture to say one you will not finish, but she, for me, holds the camera hostage with her expressive features and her your youthful vibrancy. And this film would just simply not work without her courageousness and expressiveness. I, I connected with this film really deeply because, for me, it, it taps into these emotional reservoirs that are present in, in all of us who have experienced like uh, relationships of, of passion and but also exploring the, you know, the, the consequences that come with putting yourself in the in the the hands of another human being like so completely and how the fallout from that can be so dramatic and and, and the most catastrophic thing in your life at that point but this movie goes through the entire course of a real relationship it feels that way feels like you're watching real people it's intense it's brimming 
it, it's for me this film is this film is a masterpiece that I could probably return to once every few years and be just fine. Uh, yeah, my number one film of 2013. I'm still firmly fixed at that goalpost, and it's an experience movie, and it's a hell of a hell of a made one at that. Well, yeah, I need to uh, mm. one I need to check out. Mm. So my number six. So the the reason. <laughs> So what I said before, what I was trying to, to say with the joke that I made at the end of the yeah, thing. Yeah, I must know. Was that, I meant was that, I was trying to say that Baby Driver is not on this oh, list. Oh, fuck. Okay. It's not. No. Really? It's not. Okay. And uh, it was it was tough leaving it off, but there's a whole, like, unfortunately, it's not the movie's fault, but there's a whole now nether world that is associated with it in the form of kevin spacey and it makes it very tough that's unfortunate it kind of does you know and it's again not the movie's fault the movie is still great i haven't watched it in a while but i saw it enough times that i have i wonder if enough time passes you know very well could be where maybe it's maybe some of that sheen will fade away you're more of the it's it's pretty hard to divorce yourself it is it is pretty tough so Mm -hmm. so what i did was that my number six movie, really the only question was how high did I want to put it? <laughs> and it's Star Wars The Last Jedi. <laughs> so that's why I said... Ryan, I just I just had my own little force-sensitive force moment and yeah. felt a lot of assholes clench on well, the other side of the microphone. <laughs> the fact can I, can I say that on the air? You can. I just you can. Did. You did. So that was the joke, was that there's another movie that... Uh, there is another movie on here that, With has a driver. A, that has a driver. God damn yeah, it. that's right. Yeah. And I didn't, I inadvertently made that. Well played. I didn't mean to do it. Well played. So, and really what it came down to between baby driver and the last Jedi, I knew I wanted to probably put one or the other on there, but it, the, what ended up being the deal breaker was that star Wars as an institution is such a much more important and bigger part of my life that it made sense to, put something from the new trilogy or something from this decade on there. And this was, I mean, really this ends up being the only option, the only viable option that I feel like I could, but I've said so many things about this in life, in my podcast, but I'll, uh, I'll recap. Let's recap. Settle in. No, it's not. Um, (laughs) Strap in. (laughs) It's, it's a beautiful movie that just happens to be a movie in my favorite film universe. Um, The reasons why it's good are the same reasons why people hate it and why The Rise of Skywalker was so terrible and disappointing. (laughs) Because Ryan Johnson loves this series so much, and you can tell that it means so much to him that he didn't want it to to, to, to stay stagnant. He didn't want it to... To, to do the same beats that it had done for 30, 40 years prior. He wanted an evolution. Yeah. Something outside the norm and to bring it to a place that it had never been before. And that apparently is not what people want. <laughs> I don't, I mean, damned if I know what star Wars fans want. I think it's just, it's so difficult to know these days. I think it's so difficult to, to, to pinpoint that. And it's so also what I think is that he did what he wanted to do and just said fuck everybody else because he's the filmmaker and he has he's doesn't really technically need to be beholden to any of us any of the Star Wars fans out there and he knows this universe inside and out i remember i i, I didn't necessarily want him to spar with fans on twitter about this thing i think that's that's probably above him or beneath him i'm sorry but he knows his canon inside and out you know like what should be possible what we can play with 
what what was you know what the original films introduced that we now take for granted is something that's just always been there but didn't have to be mm-hmm. yeah and creating a new force power as if they hadn't created new force powers every single movie before then and i mean th- th- there's just so many things about it like he, and it's it's the work of a confident filmmaker and it's and his his reaction to it and his sort of standing by it the entire time he never he's fine with every decision that he made and it really was it was one of the most grand experiences i've ever had forget it being a star wars movie and any movie coming out of it was just i mean you just it blew blew me away um and really it, it there's so many other things in i mean it adam driver is such a force no pun intended mm-hmm. but uh his relationship with ray uh is what makes the movie sing really i mean th- those their parts were so great in this one and then they were they were pretty good in this next one but in this most recent one but it basically did a disservice to almost what it what had come before it but you also and they also reintroduced the character of luke skywalker in this film after he wanted too much money to be in the force awakens so they just shoved him on an island and said you deal with it ryan yeah and like you were saying that is a limitation put on ryan johnson by jj abrams when most people like to look like to look at the other example of that where he had to make something interesting about luke being marooned on this island for some reason and uh yeah i think we're in agreement that he succeeded yeah i mean it's the arc that he takes in this movie is an arc first of all it has a it has a beginning. It has an ending. There's a change in the middle. Like it's such a clever way to make him be the kick-ass Luke that we remember from the earlier films in, in portions. Luke has always kind of been a tentative hero, I want to say, but it's indicative of what this film does so well in the first place, because it makes us remember portions of the earlier films, but doesn't blatantly rip them off. It sort of enhances the theme, the the themes and the things that we remember from the old from the old movies, and it, also the best lightsaber battle in the whole series, really the the throne room sequence where Ray and Kylo the, team up. The art design, oh, it's in, incredible. In that sequence and on the the battle sequence at the uh, the planet, I'm blanking on the Crate. name of the planet. Thank mm-hmm. you, I knew you'd know. Yep, uh, it's just the it's like something out of Kurosawa, you know. With uh, I haven't seen Ron unfortunately, but from the stills I've seen of Ron, it's like. It's like a blood-soaked battlefield, but done in the most artful and creative, invigorating way. And this movie was just so well thought out. I mean, and again, that's going to make a lot of people cringe, but I honestly believe that so after, do I. after watching it. And it's, it, it really mystifies me why that is such a radical opinion, seemingly. And the when Force Ghost Luke appears, spoilers, and talks with Leia, so that moment it had emotional weight on its own, just in, in and of itself. It's an emotional sequence where this character from before is meeting back up with his sister and yeah. the one who failed, who potentially, you know, he thought he had failed her son the entire time, but it was brought to a whole other level when it was viewed through the lens of Carrie Fisher's death. Yes. And their conversation and the music that, it, that is in that sequence by John Williams and it all just comes to a beautiful crescendo, and I'm thinking about it right now, and it just gives me chills every time Some, I watch it. Something the page could have never foreseen yeah. when it was written. And I, my last point is that I said it when I discussed it on the Top Ten show. I was uncomfortable with how close it was to being my favorite Star Wars movie. I can see that in the intervening years. 
I'm comfortable enough now to say it's my favorite Star Wars movie. So it's overtaken uh, Empire Strikes Back, and uh, I don't care who knows it, and I don't care if you like it because you like it, you don't like it for the wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This was the highlight of the recent trilogy for me, for sure. I I liked what Abrams introduced. It was a good foundation, and I, I liked where Johnson took the movie. I mean. I did. It was invigorating. It was refreshing. Suddenly, I, I I felt like, you know, terra firma was a little more unsettled. I was like, where are we going? Mm-hmm. And I haven't felt that way about a Star Wars movie, you know, since mm-hmm. the first time I saw Empire Strikes Back. Yep. So, yeah, uh, I knew this was going to be on your list. This was maybe the one <laughs> or two films where I was positive, positive. I was going to be on your list. Yep. And there it is. There right it there. was. Number six. Right, number six. Yep. So my number five film, Ryan. Hmm? What a lovely day. Oh, my, my number two film of 2015. It's Mad Max Fury Road from director George Miller. What a gift. <laughs> what a gift from the movie gods. <laughs> How did this come out of the studio system? I have no I clue. still am just, I'm flabbergasted. And it was a hit. Too. It was a hit. Everything about it worked. Yeah. The most balls out gonzo slice of inspired mania to come out of a studio for me in the last decade, the world building in this thing is just off the charts. George Miller dumps us into this post apocalyptic wasteland and doesn't even give us a seatbelt. <laughs> so many iconic characters and images, Hardy's Max Rockatansky taking over admirably and laconically from Mel Gibson. I think you can write down his dialogue on like yeah. a one whiteboard in this movie, <laughs> but uh, it's the, the one-armed demon <laughs> Imperator Furiosa. Charlize Theron is just literally getting more attractive every year she's alive. Amazing. Uh, somebody needs to work that out scientifically. Yeah. The war boys violently dousing their mouse in chrome before going kamikaze in the hopes that they'll make it to some utopian Valhalla. There's just so many things that show and not tell, which is such a lost art, I feel like, nowadays. So much is done in this movie without a shred of exposition. You just see it. You accept it. It becomes part of the universe. You roll with it. The epic tracking shot. This is going to be a list of things I love about the fucking sure, movie. Because please. that's just this movie. The epic tracking shot that introduces the war party and the doof warrior. Oh. <laughs> wielding a flamethrowing electric guitar. I mean, fuck. Yeah. It's, but he Miller also finds time to slow down. There are some breaks in the pace for some moments of really well rendered poetry. I think Furiosa dropping to her knees in desperation and letting out this primal scream at the loss of her, her motherland, uh, the poetry of the blue murky swamp people who walk around in those stilts. When we get to that nighttime sequence, like literally a piece of concept art that came to life. And what is so, you know, well dissected, but can't heap enough praise on it is how Miller subverts his own, legendary series by immediately crashing Max's V8 interceptor in the first scene. And that's, you know, for the most part, how much that vehicle features into the movie. You know, I think maybe Nicholas Holt's character, doesn't he drive it? I think, or I don't remember. No, I don't think, I think basically it gets destroyed Mm -hmm. in the first opening sequence. I I thought maybe they tried to repurpose it or something, but yeah, it might might just be gone. I just watched it recently. And I, and I, and I point, I I feel like I watched it last week. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Uh, in And also making Max essentially a co-player in this movie that becomes a story about female liberation and empowerment. 
something I think few could have prognosticated at, yeah. the, at the time. Uh, this movie just never stops bringing the party to you. <laughs> just when you think you've seen everything, members of the war party are dropping in on these fucking dangling Cirque du Soleil things and snatching people out of Furiosa's uh, big rig, just seemingly all in one take. I mean, I might be wrong, but it feels like one take. Uh, the movie's an absolute riot, and my second best crowd experience of all time behind only The Dark Knight. Hmm. Uh, Mad Max, a, a gift from the action gods. Thank you, George Miller. So how do we, do we want to do this? Cause this is going to show up on my list later. Let's just keep going down the list. Okay. Yeah. Cause All I right. mean, these are, these are our, fav- these are our favorite, our best 10 of yeah. a decade. Yeah. yeah. Let's just keep going down the list. Well, my number five then is a, uh, a, another one of the two times that we actually shared a number one movie and it's Arrival. Uh, and again, this was another one. I, I watched a good majority of these in the last couple of weeks when we yeah, put well. this together. Yeah. But I remember so specifically that this movie came out right after Trump's inauguration. Mm-hmm. And I doubt it was actually made with any message in mind because there were so many you know, wheels any, in motion any topical, years before. Any topical connective tissue, yeah, was yeah. incidental. I mean, it was all before the previous cycle and everything. But So I guess it ended up in a way becoming a happy accident and I think makes the film's message soar all that much more. And I was surprised to see just how much it affected me again, watching it uh, at home in preparation. I mean, at its face, it's a, it's a sci-fi movie, but at the heart, it's a wonderful story about togetherness and communication and unity. Um, it's another film in the oeuvre of Denis Villeneuve, who had an, uh, also had a pretty incredible decade amongst itself. And I think it's setting up for another great one this year when he releases Dune in December. Yeah. yeah. Uh, every single shot in this movie, I feel like can be studied as so much as just stuffed into each shot. I mean, they could just, I could also, again, another one be on a postcard because they're just so beautiful, but that just, I remember vividly, I don't remember. I, I watched it, but the, just the initial shots of flying in, in a helicopter and just seeing the, the ships coming down and just how grand they are and just how, I mean, really beautiful, the 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 alien spaceships are and the way that they're shot they're not meant to be this sort of thing to be feared the at giant, least in the movie the giant comma yes <laughs> <laughs> well now you've ruined it god damn it I'm um, sorry. Yeah. but but yeah but it's but 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 they're they're handled with such with with such great care and 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 and, and love almost i also don't think that we appreciated the composer of the music johan johansson oh, rest in peace yeah i mean he passed away this decade and he did a lot of scores for a lot of Villeneuve movies, but he gives it that driving score that gives the film its new, a new life and the marriage with the score and the ending that kind of comes out of nowhere. The score is just as otherworldly as the subject matter. Yeah. It's it's like something dropped in from another planet. It's, it's just completely and utterly just, it's very string based. It's got drums in there. It's yeah, it's, it's great. He also did the music for Sicario, which also gave us that another Hans Zimmer esque uh, wah sort of thing. The, he also did that balls out score for Mandy too, but I think that was oh, I, yeah, I, I yeah. think that, that was his last score before he died. And oh. an, a, another another barn burner. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, it's again I mentioned both of our best movie of the year, 2016. It, it kept its slot on this list. It's interesting to think about now, sort of the idea of time in that movie because the the beings don't experience it in the same way that we do mm-hmm. and 
the things that the, the, the things that happen and you notice it when you know what the beats of the movie are uh it's also just geared around the the architecture of their language too mm-hmm. it doesn't work in the same linear way that we're accustomed to thinking about language yeah they they don't waste time with their language they just have one thing that has so many different elements but yeah mm-hmm. um but yeah i really i ended up i was again another one i was like questioning i wasn't sure but it just totally hit me in the feels all, all over again. So arrival. Yeah. Because you volunteered a previous <laughs> piece of information. Yeah. It, it will show up on my list later as well. So I'll uh, keep my comments in a minimum for now. Uh, number four, again, another film that did not show up on any previous list. Uh, this is a similar situation with burning where I saw it in the next week or so after we did that year's list. And again, slamming my face into the wall that I didn't see it two weeks earlier. Uh, It is a movie called Never Let Me Go. It comes from 2010 from director Mark Romanek. Oh, this is the Alex Garland thing. This is the Alex Garland one, yeah. Yeah, He he wrote it before he had uh, stepped behind the director's chair. Uh, Stepped into the director's chair, excuse me. And he's adapting the novel here, Romanek is, by uh, Kazuo Ishiguro and, again, Garland with the screenplay. Um... I was just so pissed off. I couldn't put this in my list. That year. Uh, Never let me go shares something of a kinship with a movie like uh, her, the Spike Jones movie in that it's just slightly science fiction. The dial is tweaked just a hair to the right that distinguishes itself enough from modern day, but seems like in, you know, a couple things happen differently in time. This could have been an alternate uh, destination. We could have gone down and, because I, I feel like actually, well, I'll go back to the plot and it's something I, I couldn't figure out how to do succinctly myself. So I cheated and relied on IMDb. Sure. <laughs> yes. Totally I, fine. I, I hope you'll allow it. Quote, as children, Ruth, Kathy and Tommy spend their childhood at a seemingly idyllic English boarding school. They grow into young adults. They find that they have come to terms with the strength of love and they feel for each other while preparing themselves for the haunting reality that awaits them. And yeah, it's like uh, the, the, the trifecta, the triumvirate of the, of the movie is Carrie Mulligan as Ruth, um, Kira Knightley as Kathy and Andrew Garfield as Tommy. Uh, pretty solid trifecta. Looking Great back, cast. Yeah, yeah. Looking back on it. And there's also a very young Dom, Domhnall Gleeson in it as well, hey. which I didn't realize until I watched it again a week ago. And <laughs> it was like, oh, Alex Garland, Ex Machina. Yeah, like yeah. This, this was started a long time ago. Uh, so another film kind of tapping into my de facto, well, and my weak analysis of my list in terms of a running theme. And that is it really takes a look inside and asks what really makes us human. What is a soul? Is is a human defined by something capable of making art or being artful? Is it something that uh, one being can, can demonstrate uh, with the, the topic of love or it has the capacity to love? Uh, those are the questions this, this movie is, is asking. And I think it, from what I've read, it, it takes most of the Ishiguro novel, but kind of diverges here and there. So it's not a letter to letter adaptation, but I don't want to spoil the movie because I think it's the kind of movie that went under the radar that year. And there, I figured there's still plenty of people that haven't seen it, but the, the, the quote unquote secret of the movie is revealed, you know, about halfway through. It's not meant to be a, a sixth sense kind of uh, Tyler Durden twist or anything, but when this 
when this pivot point does come, it, it really starts to uh, to sharpen the focus and themes of the movies in uh, in very powerful ways. Um, Carrie Mulligan, I'm I'm very disappointed. I don't see much of her these days because in this movie and others like it, I'm thinking of like Shame, the Steve McQueen movie, uh, and Education uh, comes to mind. Uh, she is a powerhouse, I think, and the amount of emotion she can, she can convey with just facial gestures and body language it, it, to me is simply astounding and i think she was in her early 20s in this movie and she's like the oldest young person i've ever seen on camera she, you know, she yeah. looks she looks like like your grandma but as a 20 year old and i mean that in the best way like i i love her as an actress she's, well she was in drive too let's not forget that's right there you go she was yes she i think she's wise and expressive well beyond her years as an actress i may have called her michelle williams in the other in, when i talked about it anyway go mm. on yeah yeah, yeah. It's carrie mulligan carrie mulligan yeah. yeah and um she emotes both ruth's optimism and the the shattering futility of her strangely guided and curated life which is kind of the only clue i'll give as to where this goes but uh, Never Let Me goes on my list in this uh, vaunted of a spot because it it really it delicately taps into a raw nerve that I don't think we normally find time in the day to analyze. And that's, you know, just who and what are we really? What what separates us from other species? You know, uh, um, and what do we mean in the grander scheme of things? You know, like what is this? Is, are we just transient? Are we just passing in time? Is there some greater meaning to all of this? And it, it asks all these questions and resolves in an, in an ambiguous and satisfying way all in 103 minutes. So uh, Never Let Me Go is something I would encourage everyone listening to check out. It's, uh, it's pretty special. Yeah, I know. We really wanted to uh, – mm-hmm. I wish I had more to say about it because, yeah. Uh, yeah, I really wanted to see it, mm-hmm. especially now that, you know, those people are, like, famous and stuff too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of like a short-term 12 thing. Like, here yeah. we are. They're, uh, They're coming back. All famous now. <laughs> so my number four now, right? Uh, you're number four. Yeah. Um, actually, when I was putting the list together, this was a total just accident, really. But my number four is another, I guess, if we want to talk about the decade as being a decade of recycling ideas and of uh, reboots and sequels and remakes and things like that, um, I guess it's only fitting that I have a few of them on here. I had The Last Jedi. And then a movie that was about halfway on my list in uh, 20, I guess, gosh, when did this movie even come out? It's Blade Runner 2049. 2017. There you go. So I had had, two from 2017. That's what it was. Yeah. Wow. You got got this movie that high. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like. You got two Denny Villeneuve movies back back to back. back. Again, I didn't even, I didn't even think about that. Uh I mean, but it's, but it's one of the most, I think interesting ideas for a remake a movie that didn't really need to have a postscript to it but now that you see the new one you sort of you have to look at them both kind of together i think it entered the pantheon of just you can't see one without the other really um just the world that the the the, this dingy dirty world that has been created by denis villeneuve and academy award winner uh uh, uh, Roger Deakins cinematography almost finally lost my, almost lost my film card right there finally for Christ's sake yeah this man was gilded just yes but again it's like the oh let's give it to him for everything else that he's done and he'll and probably win again this year for 1917 oh for sure for sure and then it'll be like great this guy's gonna freaking win all the time <laughs> <laughs> now we gotta like yeah. put him back on the leash right yeah but it's a uh, it's but it's 
it's a so well executed and it's difficult not to be good and interesting when it's in the hands of Denis. But he actually gets a good and believable performance out of Harrison Ford, which I think is a is a is a, a yeah, success all in of it. Part of his of fair, farewell tour of the time with uh, yeah with Indiana Jones, Han, yeah, and, and Han, Han Solo and Han this. Solo, but this yeah. is the best of the three. I never felt like yeah, for sure he got into the groove when he was being Han Solo again. This I felt like he was back in the groove of that character again. But it does again. I, I bring it up again. It does what any great sequel does, which honor the past without being slavishly faithful to it. And a majority of the plot has to do with a character and something that happened in the past that is affecting all of this change in the future. I mean, you rarely even see the character that, you know, Sean Young's character that is sort of being a main driver behind all this. Now you see things that are different, but it's still inherently recognizable as this world of Blade Runner. Um, But really the story of the movie is the cinematography. Uh, as we mentioned, the first Oscar for Roger Deakins. But it's told in these beautiful, like, blue and yellow and orange and neon. And and it features some of my favorite shots in the whole decade. I mean, I'm talking about the giant advertisement of the woman that kind of comes down. Yeah. And while Ryan Gosling is bloodied. And, I mean, just the opening scene with him and Dave Bautista. Mm-hmm. With the, um, it had the, the pot boiling, pot boiling yeah. on the thing. And you could just... The, the 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 tension was simmering in the it was almost uh, like when the the toaster was activated in Pulp Fiction yeah before that standoff ching, between uh, yeah Bruce Willis and uh, John Travolta yeah yeah so I mean the the Jared Leto of course he's a bit of a nut job but he's kind of channels that and harnesses it to his success and uh, a breakout performance also for Ana de Armas she uh, was in this movie as Joy mm-hmm. and was the sort of digital girlfriend of Ryan Gosling's K character replicant. Oh, what, a, what a beautiful, I think there was a, there was a love sequence. Mm-hmm. Right? I, remember, I remember, yeah, that was just beautifully done. Yeah. It was with uh, him and Mackenzie Davis. Mackenzie Davis was, was, like, was the soul. Was like the, was, was like the cipher for yes. the, the, the digital assistant. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and just so much of it is just tension filled and just beautifully shot. And just the action is wonderful. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really, really, really is great. Yeah, Deacons, he finally won for Blade Runner. Uh, I mean, he's he's like, he's a Scorsese kind of story. He should have won probably five or six times before that. But the most glaring omission is, did you ever see The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford? I did not. No, that, I know I'm, that, I'm that, well that behind work, on that one. That work, I think it was an Andrew Dominic uh, mm-hmm. movie, that work was just poetry in motion. And uh, that, that, that is the original sin for me between the Academy and Roger Deakins is like, that was, that was probably the most glaring oversight. So, yeah, I, uh, I, I did not expect it to be as high as it was on my list, but uh, Blade Runner 2049. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have pegged that for that high on your list either. Yeah. Where, where was it in your, it was like five, I think was it five on five okay. in 2017. Yeah. Sounds about right. Yep. Uh, my number three, you've already touched on it, but uh, it was our joint number one film of 2016. It is Arrival. We're just going to talk about Denny Villeneuve for an hour. Let's apparently. do it, baby. The uh, the most gorgeous and profound meditation on time, as you touched on in the last decade. Uh, it's power over my senses and what I want to see in a film, what I hope to see every time I sit down in a seat, has never really left me. And when I whenever I think about the bookends of this movie... I just go full bitch mode and I just, I'm gone. Like I, like somehow Denny Villeneuve knew how to wreck me so much that 
how he knows how to do that, I'm a little frustrated by, and I'm frankly mildly concerned with. <laughs> this man could probably just unravel me if he wanted to. But yes, the uh, the story of a linguist played by Amy Adams asked to make contact with an alien race inside their comma comma ship. <laughs> uh, it just has this startling balance of intelligence and beauty woven throughout the movie. In a way, and this might sound like blasphemy, but I think Arrival is the the movie that Christopher Nolan has been trying to make, hmm. but has yet to really succeed with. Because one of the biggest criticisms lobbied in Nolan has always been his lack of emotional resonance, I think, in his movies. And he's definitely tried to go there in the last decade with, with Inception and the whole thing about uh, Cobb's wife. And then the obviously there's a lot of emotion rung throughout Interstellar. But Villeneuve, I think, finds that perfect balance between something that makes you think and something that rocks you to your core in like an emotional and spiritual way. Like this was the most, for me, intelligent science fiction film I saw all decade. And uh, I love science fiction. It's always been one of my favorite uh, diversions in movie going. And uh, you you just clamor for the opportunity to see something like this every year that then moves you in, in this kind of a way. Uh, I, I that that's it. The, mm-hmm. only, the only note I had that's was it. that's uh, the tweet was uh, again uh, uh, aping your your love for Johan Johansson and um, what a what a great score and what a great career and an unfortunately truncated life. So uh, short. yeah, um, Arrival my our number one with a bullet in 2016 and mm-hmm. number three on my list. All right. Well, my number three is. Uh, a movie that you've already brought up as well. So it makes perfect sense. And it's another remake slash weird sequel. And it's Mad Max Fury Road. So in 2015, you had Spotlight as your number one movie. Yes. And why I'm curious why at the time you didn't have Mad Max at, at the top of the list. Uh, honestly, was, was it the recency bias? Probably. Maybe? Yeah, yeah, it was okay. probably. I mean, Spot, I, love Spot, I love Spotlight. It was very effective. I love Spotlight. Don't get me wrong. But I think yeah. that if I'm talking about best movies of the decade and I'm talking about films that are going to stay with me and the visual sumptuous of, or I don't know what you would, how you would even break that word down. Yeah, but the sumptuousness. Yeah, yeah. Of, of that movie. Uh, it's stayed with me more than spotlight has so Mm -hmm. i mean like you're saying movie going experience unlike any other i actually was lucky enough to go to a pre-screening of it about five to six months before it even came out i remember that yeah and even though it was unfinished and it was missing some vfx shots the majority of the beginning was still intact and i remember thinking this is this is going to be just I mean, this is going to be talk. Everyone's going to be talking about this, and it hadn't even been released that year yet. <laughs> I mean, it's a technical marvel, exhilarating on every level. With, I mean, a relatively simple story. It's just we got to get these people from point A to point B and it's, back to point A. There you go. That's it. You know, <laughs> but it's it's definitely the visuals. This one that that ruled the day. I mean, from the makeup of Morton Joe to the pace of the War Boys. I mean, you were talking about uncut gems in our top 10 of uh, 2019 and the 16 frames per second. Is this what, eight frames per second? Like, I mean, there's... Yeah, it's, it's so it's, weirdly it's, sped up in ways mm-hmm. that I, I can't really even articulate, but it uh, it's effective. It seems like, a, it seems like it's a, a horror, like a low-budget horror movie. Like, it almost looks like a Peter Jackson type of, mm. of thing. It, very beginning, especially. Yeah, like, like Dead Alive. Or yeah, yeah or the Frighteners or something. Mm-hmm. 
but the uh, I mean again I wrote down the do warrior also it's it's a it's a what an image it's a two second thing that really pops in the screen maybe once or twice but it just has left an indelible indelible mark on us both this guy <laughs> just playing a friggin guitar as he runs into war like it's it, it's, uh, it's just mm-hmm. it's again it's being in the palm of someone's hand and knowing you're in for a ride yeah and they're in complete control of it you can ask for nothing more as a moviegoer so I watched it recently and. There's a, I, I gotta say it was a much different feel now than watching it in 2015. Like, and with basically now with the fears of climate change, either we're more aware of it or the, the signs are more prevalent than they were. And so much of this country falling into madness, it took on even more of a feeling of doom, I think, than it really had when it first came out. Like, I don't want to feel like our future is us driving to Bullet Mountain or... <laughs> After gasoline. Yeah, or, like, waiting for Immortan Trump to give us water or something. <laughs> like, I just... It it all feels like, instead of just a, just a interesting fantasy, it's like, this is... Could be a future water. for us. Here you go. Here's water. Ugh. So, yeah. So, Mad Max Free Road, we talked about it a lot, but we talked about it then. But it's definitely left more of an impact than something like uh spotlight. And it's more of the movie. I feel like I would like to see again and again. So, um, yeah. So yeah, I, uh, I love it. And it's, it's definitely, uh, hasn't, uh, left me since then. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, we're, d- we're down to our number one and two films of the decade. Oh, right. Man. I think this is going well. I, I agree. I, I feel like we're, uh, we're both, uh, we're both lockstep. We haven't, we haven't made a misstep either one of us. And, uh, we're, we're going to take it home now. Don't start now. Don't, don't start now. Don't start now. <laughs> man, my, 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 I struggled so much ranking my number one and two films of the decade. Now, I, did you have a problem? <laughs> you're probably about to just say this, but I'm going to just jump in. Did you have a problem with how to, how to rank them as if you weren't sure one or two, like you knew what movies they were going to be, but you weren't sure which was which, or well, did it, you have problems just saying any of these movies were one or two? It, it's, it just speaks to the absurdity of pitting certain movies against other movies because there's just so many wildly diverging things on offer. And how do you really rank them in the end? You know, it, it's all arbitrary of course. And, that being said, these apparently are going to live forever now. And in, 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 I said it in the podcast so. airwaves. Uh, so I had to, I had to make a decision and uh, I eventually made one, whether time will tell I made a good one or not is yet to be, yet, yet to be seen. But my number two film of the decade, uh, it was my number three or four of 2010, I think. And uh, Ryan, your your prescience here can't be overlooked. Uh, you coronated it with, as your number one film of the year, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. What's left to say about the Social Network? I don't, yeah, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, David Fincher's whirlwind kamikaze movie experience of 2010 that somehow just seems seems to keep gaining relevance uh, with. Uh, the the subject matter, Mr. Zucker, Mr. Zuckerberg, seemingly getting more entrenched in in controversy with each passing year. Uh, what I don't think it's blasphemy to declare this a modern day Shakespeare event. Uh, it has everything the Bard would have loved. I mm-hmm. think it has friendship. It has humor, drama, jealousy, betrayal, deception, loneliness. It's all there. It's got it all. It's all there on the page. Yeah, it, and it's got the cinematic dream team behind the camera. It's got Fincher directing 
must-see TV in any given movie year and a master class of a filmmaker. It's got, it's got the, the, the blitzkrieg <laughs> delivery <laughs> of Aaron Sorkin's writing. And it's, it's fucking Aaron Sorkin. What more can you say? And then it's got the scoring team of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, who probably with Johnny Greenwood are the most consistently great composers I think we have working right now. It has the the budding stars at the time, you, you know, some some exposure, but not as much as we would think now. Jesse Eisenberg, Andrew Garfield, and the great Army Hammer, all seemingly were born where were the movie gave birth to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as as presences and twins in Army Hammer's case. <laughs> very true. The, uh, the 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 breakneck dialogue in this movie has just the the sting of a a rubber band whipping across your hand. It's like it's like His Girl Friday with nerds. Uh, the, the fucking wow. the, uh, the the Winkle Vi, yes, <laughs> the brothers Vi. I'm six five two twenty, and there's two of me. If they want to stand on each, <laughs> if they want to stand on their shoulders, <laughs> they call themselves tall. tall. <laughs> That's fine. And then uh, Mark. Yeah. You want to buy a Tower Records, Ryan? I think you'll find the King's speech in there. The uh, <laughs> the salmon and the trout. <laughs> All because a guy wanted to buy his woman a pair of thigh highs. The list of pleasures is just endless. Um, Directed within an inch of its life by Fincher, an absolute master. The, the subject matter being as relevant, I think, as it still is, not with the formation of Facebook, but the evolution of Facebook, would actually provide an interesting opportunity for Fincher to make, I think, the first sequel to one of his own movies, because there is obviously another story here, mm-hmm. and it's continuously developing in front of our eyes. Uh, it's so it's so funny remembering how this was just kind of condescendingly referred to as the Facebook movie before it came out we didn't know i feel like nobody really had an idea it it was was you know it it was just kind of something you rolled your eyes at like why is fincher getting into this material that seems so uninteresting on its face but for the reasons i've hopefully just convinced everyone of there is just so much going on here that that justifies his involvement and oh how little we were prepared for this movie yeah no definitely i remember you saying you rarely say it, and it sounds trivial to say but that was a movie yeah when we walked out no it really was we saw it separately but Mm -hmm. That was a movie, and you know, in, instill your own meaning, your own meaning into that, whatever it may be. But. Yeah, and it, you know, and unfortunately, it was like it just missed. Just for me. missed, huh? Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 so. Yeah, I mean, you pretty much nailed it. You pretty much hit hit the. I watched it again last week. I mean, it's one of the movies I just most routinely return to. I feel like I watch it at least once a year because right. it is just such a ride from the first frames where we get the breakup with Erica Albright mm-hmm. and then the, uh, the drunken face mash scripting with women against other women. And yeah, that it, whole it, sequence of like, <laughs> of him writing the algorithm, getting the algorithm from, from, Eduardo. from Eduardo and yeah. everything. And uh, yeah, no, the writing in it is so great. And there's just, it's just an electric film. So many. Yeah. So much good stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, it's up there with anything from previous decades in, in mm-hmm. terms of watchability. I'd put it up against anything. Are we on to number two? Number yeah. two film of the decade, Ooh, Ryan. Coming down the home stretch here. Well, I just have one line of dialogue that will clue you in to what this movie is, and it's, are you rushing or are you dragging? <laughs> fair, fair. Whiplash. Wow, you had it that high. My number two. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't, shake, I couldn't shake that movie. It's a, just a firecracker of a film. <laughs> And the announcement of a new young talent in Damien Chazelle. I don't think he's made anything quite at this level yet, but I think his 
next two films have been each good in their own sense. Yeah. Um, J.K. Simmons gives one of the best performances of the decade as the jazz music teacher Fletcher, who uh, Miles Teller's Andrew wants nothing more than to like and accept him. And uh, it's a film really just about the relentless pursuit of perfection and the cost that can come with it. Andrew sacrifices his health, his relationships with his father and with a girl, all in the pursuit of becoming the best jazz drummer since Buddy Rich. And I actually heard an interesting story, just a little bit of a sidebar. Um, we're recording this a few days after the untimely death of Kobe Bryant. And I heard on a podcast, uh, the, the host was talking to somebody and it was during, this, during Super Bowl week and they were talking to Miles Teller. And Miles Teller was like, oh yeah, I have a Kobe Bryant story too. And the guy was like, oh, it's because you grew up in Philly. Like, so did Kobe and everything like that. And he's like, no, he reached out to me after he saw Whiplash and was like, that's the Mamba mentality. Wow. So it was like this totally just... He, Dynamite drop-in. Somehow he just knew, like, he's able to figure out how to get Miles Teller's phone number just to tell him, like, that's what this is all about. And it's Jesus. like... Yeah, it's pretty crazy. That's, that's intense. Yeah. So a lot of films... I mean, we talked about a little bit when we both placed it at number one in 2014. Right. It really... It's so funny, the ending of it. I, th- I think about the ending a lot because it ends on what's portrayed as, like, a positive note where he kind of gets the recognition that he's been so desperately seeking for so long when he does the drum solo. And then Fletcher finally looks at him and like gives him the, uh, that he gives him the raised eyebrows as if he's smiling. And you're like, it's, it's set up as this great grand moment, but I really, I feel like it's extremely negative. Now, if you think about what will happen now after the movie comes, like after the, what happens in the movie, but it pretty much sets up like a horrible relationship. <laughs> the horrible masochistic relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Like Fletcher's the abusive ex-boyfriend <laughs> that you swore off and you knew you were done with because he's hurt you too many times, both emotionally <laughs> and physically. And yet with the subtle raise of his eyebrows, he brings you flowers and your favorite dinner and you take him back. And that's just what this movie is about. It's a damaged, fractured relationship. Yes, they're both damaged goods yeah. and they've somehow found a magnetic attraction. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the films on this Milo's this decade kind of have a movement all their own. And this film I feel like is no different. It hits you. It doesn't let up. It uses the cymbal crash and the pounding of the drums. And it creates a feeling of dread and of action that other films just don't have. And it's just completely unforgettable from the opening frame to the concert sequence at the end is just from minute to minute, just grabbing the seat, just oh, the twists and turns. Totally. In this movie. Yeah. I mean the, the car accident in it, totally unexpected. And you're like, okay, maybe now he'll kind of learn his lesson. And no, he just grabs his sticks and limps over to the, <laughs> to the concert venue. So yeah, so many twists and turns, but yeah, whiplash uh, number two. Yeah. I remember seeing it in Pasadena and the feeling I had walking out of it was something you just attested to is that, it just feels like in most movies would play the end of this movie as some kind of rah, rah inspirational moment where the kids finally lived his dream and they're in their lockstep with each other. And this beautiful relationship is going to blossom from it. But no, it, it, it is a disturbing finale and I am terrified for where this relationship it's goes. It's not going to be great. No, that's no, for sure. they're just going to self immolate one after another order is still yet to be determined, but they are going to destroy each mm-hmm. other. And I don't want to be around to see it. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I don't think that, I, I think that Chazelle was trying to get that across. I don't think he was trying to 
for frame it as a I don't happy th- ending. I don't think so either, but we're so accustomed to that kind of an ending with most movies where that is what people want to you to take out of them that Chazelle had something much different on his mind, which is why I think we both gravitated so strongly towards it. And yeah, that's that back and forth, that yin and yang was just, just a disturbing delight to watch that year. All right. We've come down to it. Our number one film oh my God. of the decade. So I honestly don't know where you're going to go with this. Do you, do you, I mean, I don't know where you're going. Okay. So I, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess yeah. we're excited. <laughs> okay. This yeah. Um, I just assume it's the last Jedi <laughs> for you. Uh, you've you've spoken much more. You've, so you've, you've, many you've, times you've waxed poetic on. I don't even have room to breathe. Let me ask to you talk this. about that movie. Ha- have I mentioned it at all? No. Okay. All right. Um, and so let's see. My number one film of the decade, well, of the previous decade. You mentioned that list kind of at the beginning. I didn't really speak much to it because I wanted to save it for this moment. Uh, my number one of the last decade before this one was Into the Wild from Sean Penn. And that was a film that I still stand behind as my favorite movie in my life in the decade for that point in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it struck a deep chord with me having kind of recently graduated from college. And I saw it as kind of an invitation to seek out adventure in my 20s and 30s and see where it leads me, albeit in a slightly more responsible way than Christopher McCandless did. Yeah. Uh, I, I do love my family and I would be telling them where I'm going, <laughs> but it was basically a, a call to not be so apprehensive about where my twenties and thirties would take me and just, and take risks, go on adventures, see where it leads me. And, and, uh, and, and that was why that film registered with me so strongly as I feel like I, you know, I've mostly lived up to that and maybe a few regrets here and there, but uh, it really resonated with me. And my number one film of this decade is not that. Mm. <laughs> it, is, it is not the same kind of thing at all. It, maybe it's a testament to my evolution as a film goer and what I find interesting now. But I want to see movies, I'm realizing, that give me a unique vision and give me a vision with a voice that I could have never dreamed of witnessing before I sat down in the theater and, and it came onto the screen. Um, so this film uh, was actually my number three film of 2014. <sighs> my number one is Under the Skin. Whoa! From Jonathan Glazer. Yeah. My number one film of the decade is Under the Skin. This movie has a strange power over me, and I don't know what it is about it. <laughs> I It feels as if it actually got dropped to earth from another world and into our laps. Uh Scarlett Johansson acting at a time at which I think we knew her potential, but we didn't really see her like we see her now as more of kind of a powerhouse uh, figure. I think she she had her under her belt at this point, so there were interesting ways for her career to go. But I think we th- this for me was her her birth as a legitimate actress, which is kind of weird because she's spending most of the movie voiceless. You know, there's not a lot being said here, but. She stars as an alien uh, suited up in human flesh who scours the Scottish countryside looking for men to seduce. Also, she can bring them back to her lair posing as a home and basically eviscerate them into fodder <laughs> for her cohorts to study. Uh, it's, it's, it's not until Johansson's character encounters a disfigured man with some sort of an, like an elephantine or elephantitis. I, I should have looked up what it actually is, but I didn't 
disease on his face where he it's a very sympathetic figure who most of society is probably marginalized uh, it's not until she meets this character in what would be one of her normal uh, rounds looking for prey um, that she abandons her role as this figure and basically just roams the countryside and just becomes captivated by the complexity and and messiness of humanity and all its beauty and ugliness. Uh, there's other aliens around. She's not isolated here. There's one in particular riding a motorcycle clad up in some futuristic biking gear and acting as if he was her, her cleaner. Like, uh, you know, he's the one who makes sure things go right and he cleans up the mess when it goes wrong. And then he's actually forced to reckon with her when he uh, learns of her abdication from her responsibilities. And then it's her, ta- his, his task to hunt her down. Uh, there are just so many unforgettable images and sounds in this in this film. Um, the opening is something out of 2001. It, it's this strange dance of geometric shapes uh, and a- abstract meaning that is, is such an unnerving place to begin because it just feels like the possibilities are endless. Um, the layer of seduction, as it were, <laughs> it fades to an empty black the deeper you go inside and then becomes this icky black... Uh, Pool, sucking you downward until you're basically chewed up and spit out on the other end. Uh, the gorgeous viola-heavy nerve-jangling score by Mika Levy, uh, I submit as my favorite and most original score of, of the decade. Uh, what, what a perfect compliment to what Glazer is giving us here. Uh, haunting images. There's a, a child marooned on a beach crying. Its parents just lost in a tragic accident. The, the shocking, brutal, but still hauntingly gorgeous finale. Uh, Johansson, just an outstanding minimalist performance that really just lets her face and body language do most of the work. You know, it's almost like her, she was just a voice. And and here she's like, she's a voice plus a body. So it's doing similar kind of work here. Uh, Her just, there's a scene where she just examines her, I won't try to spoil anything, but examines her nude form in the mirror for the first time, bathed in red light. Uh, She actually, as Johansson did, stuck with this movie for four years while... Glazer secured the financing for it. So I think she saw the potential pretty early Hmm. on. Uh, Glazer shoots this movie halfway formalistic and halfway kind of guerrilla street level um, where it looks like it's almost on digital video. Uh, In fact, Johansson picks up a few men in her vehicle as this predatory kind of scenario plays out. And these people didn't actually know they were in a movie and didn't know it was Scarlett Johansson inside the car. And they were only included in the movie after being told after the fact and signing a a consent form. Um, So there's a funny side note. This movie actually generated a a popular meme at the time of Johansson tripping and falling over (laughs) in Scotland. I don't know if you remember this or not. Don't remember, no. But uh, it was was definitely a Reddit meme that got a lot of traction. Uh, It was widely circulated, and it wasn't really until the the movie came out uh, that everyone found out the fall was intentional. Uh-huh. So she was saved there a little bit. Uh, yeah. Um, Under the Skin is my number one film because I think it defies categorization and explores again, what it means to be human with Glazer's poetic eye. That's just surgically precise. There's just every, every scene, every image is a painting here. Uh, it's the deepest cut of the decade for me, and I, I resigned myself to the fact that I may just never get its profound strangeness out of my system. Hmm. <laughs> that is my number one film of the decade. Wow, that was uh, 
a little bit unexpected. Yeah, I uh, I bet probably for you too. Yeah, I would think. Yeah, yeah, I didn't, didn't think I would have gone there either after I saw it in the theater, but there I am. Did you watch it recently again yeah. too? Or? Okay, I watched it last uh, last week. Okay, yeah, huh. yeah, Whew, it's out there. It's, it's there. It's public record. You can't you, you can't take it back. Yeah. <laughs> you can't take it back anymore. Ryan, um, what's your number one film of the decade? Well, Clayton, I have I have some news for you. Much like the ads that politicians decide to place on its website, I too lied to you. And I also put the social network as number one. I'm so sorry. I, I'm not sorry, but I, I'm going to pretend I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, but literally, I'm so fucking sorry. And we were this close to locking up I know. on our number one film of the decade. I, I apologize know. greatly. That would have been that would have been cool. That really would have been. <laughs> Honestly, could it really be anything else? I don't think. I've been pounding the drum for this film since it came out, yeah. and I haven't really stopped for ten years. In fact, I pretty confidently and pretty surely said this is probably the best movie of the decade when it came out in 2010, <laughs> and so I have not yet stopped saying that. And uh, of course, all these other lesser publications and lesser podcasts are going, ooh, The Social Network, it's the best movie of the decade. Bitch, I was there from fucking October of 2010, all right? Just, yeah. just, so that's a little bit of tooting my own horn. Your weather forecast extended I 10 guess. years. Yeah. I, maybe it's just that I, I knew it would be there and then everything else just kind of came in around it. I don't know. But I mean, it's, it's the most perfect marriage of director and writer that I can think of. And certainly for the decade, like you said, razor sharp writing, top notch directing. It was, and the, you, it's interesting that you bring up the potential potentiality of a sequel. Yeah. Because I, I mean, I still think even that the stuff that is in the movie now is still, or still in the movie, then is still applicable to mm. now. I still think you can draw some of it mm -hmm. today as you could, as, as much as you could back then. <laughs> like, but it was like the Facebook movie, quote unquote, mm -hmm. but it was, Facebook was sort of on its rise and it was still, it, it wasn't a novelty in 2010, but I don't think it had been infiltrated with boomers quite yet. So it was like right in this weird gray area, like where we know it now, where it's like people like us, we tend to kind of avoid it. And then back then it was like, okay, like this is kind of wearing off a little bit. I didn't, maybe we didn't realize just how much social media would really come and play into our lives. And that's prescient that the film was able to be made at that time. And we are still able to say that social media is the biggest force in, in the world, basically. It mm -hmm. still had that somewhat of a cool factor. And yet as we finished out 2019 and into 2020, it's, it, it, thanks to scandals like the Cambridge Analytica scandal yeah. or the mass murders in Myanmar because of misinformation spread on Facebook and their insistence on not screening political ads for accuracy. Yeah. Like Facebook has infiltrated our political world and <laughs> somehow managed to overstay its welcome as a social media tool. It, it is great watching these, uh, these people in the Senate and you know, the, uh, yeah, the, the different the, lawmakers. Yeah. Just trying sort of, to understand what yeah. Facebook is <laughs> because it, it's such an esoteric industry and, 
they're they just it's so you get the feeling you know they're just not even talking about the same th- damn thing sometimes because this stuff is just so beyond the people doing the questioning and they got a couple of they probably got some notes from their younger staffers beforehand but yeah. even the younger staffers i'm sure are probably like i don't use facebook i use yeah. snapchat or tiktok or whatever all they know is. is it needs to be regulated yeah but they don't know they don't what know it's actually doing <laughs> yeah like oh it can't be that important right oh no it's fine it only like led to the downfall of american democracy but like <laughs> quite it was like i remember even thinking at the time also the just how much of a flex it was to play an actual beatles song at the end credits like not a cover not an instrumental the actual song baby you're a rich man it was a power move it really was i mean i just speaking to my own experience in the industry i, I know how expensive those songs are to use in a movie and that's how expensive why- uh, they're at least three or four million a song. <laughs> oh so uh, that was that was in two thousand nine. So mm-hmm. fuck knows what they are now. But yeah, just hearing an original Beatles song in a movie is uh, it's uh, it's not it's not cheap. It's definitely not cheap, and but it it fits so well. Obviously, the baby or rich man, just the title itself, but yeah. the idea of just this decadence and. Everything, honestly, that Mark probably would have railed against because he never was really about money. But it's interesting that to have it in there. Yeah, we talked about the memorable quotes and sequences. It just I mean, never, it never ends. Man. No, like I'm CEO, bitch. Like that <laughs> that whole that whole sequence. Like you know, a million dollars isn't cool. You know, it's cool, Clayton. <laughs> a billion, a billion dollars. dollars. Yeah. Fucking Mitch Manningham, tell him to fuck off. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, this is where they film Towering Inferno. Oh, that's comforting. <laughs> that's comforting. But it sets the, 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 it sets the tone so well just in the first scene. Like the, that back and forth dialogue. It, it drops you into the blender. Yeah, it just you just know what you're in for, and it doesn't let up the rest of the movie. And legend has it, and this I don't even know if it's a legend. I think it's true that when Sorkin and Fincher met to meet about the screenplay, they he had uh, Fincher had Sorkin use a stopwatch, like a, something on his phone, like a timer. And basically said, I want you to read the dialogue as fast as you hear it in your head. Mm-hmm. And they basically timed out every single basically sequence in the oh, movie okay. to make it seem so that they were able to have that same pacing and that same mm. so that Fincher was able to have something to go. Okay, it's great, but we need to go a little bit faster, or we need to take it back a little bit, or this. Scene, I mean, they did this scene like over a hundred times. This yeah. opening sequence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that level of detail that went into just a simple dialogue scene, but the 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 patter and the everything about it is just. I mean, it's just wonderful, really. I mean, the so I have written here. I blew my downfall of democracy thing, but. <laughs> <laughs> the conversation in the bar is them trading barbs back and forth and ends with her breaking up with him, which in turn causes the eventual downfall of our democracy. <laughs> should have stuck in, with it. In, 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 in a way, it's a misogynist film. <laughs> yeah, um, yes. it's, uh, it's pointing uh, all the event, mm-hmm. the ills and woes that have uh, be, become byproducts of social media on a poor college girl. Oh, it really who, is. Who goes to BU? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Because you go to BU. Because you go to BU. Yeah. Yeah. And the right. acting too. I mean, we talked, I mean, Honestly, most of these lines that we've been mentioning are from Justin Timberlake. Mm. Like Justin Timberlake as Sean Parker is at that point, Timberlake was like just a musician. He was, he'd gotten out on his own a couple of years before then. And he'd been, had a small role at alpha dog, but it didn't really know kind of where he wanted to take his career. Yeah. And for him to do this and just be this like eternally cool guy or some, someone who thinks he's cooler than he actually is. Uh, mm. I think it was a, a, a very inspired choice. 
the intercutting from the past to the present to the multiple depositions for yeah. the lawsuits is a brilliant storytelling idea of making depositions riveting. What yeah. A, what a Herculean feat. Yeah. And to go and, and to then just say, okay, well we're going to place it in this parts of the story. It just feels so perfect. We spend just the right amount of time with everything. Uh, you mentioned the music. Mm. It's a score that I've heard described as only being able to work in the context of the movie, which mm. I think is a compliment. I think it's like, mm. you can listen to it. I think, on its own and it's good but i think that it's inherently it's just 100 percent better when you think of it in the context of the movie and when mm. you see it placed with the movie i think right. it's immediately recognizable and it won an oscar i forgot that it actually won the oscar for trent reznor that's right i forgot that too yeah so speaking of the oscars it of course uh lost at the academy awards to the king's speech which is a fine film in its own right it is a fine I did, yeah it just not we, not for it's uh, completely unforgettable who would, we, we knew at the time that this was going to be uh, one of those. This, this was going to be one of those ceremonies where it's dissected many years from it and wondering how the hell this decision came out. Mm-hmm. Because the King's Speech, fine film, Oscar fodder, good one watch. Yeah. Social Network will live on literally for eternity. Yeah, and, and I guess it's it's tough to do that in the moment because you don't know what's going to be relevant or you don't know what's going to resonate or I, I just they don't they didn't know what they had on their hands, I think mm-hmm. with the movie when they were deciding which movie to give it to. I mean, but this film it sort of would come to accidentally define and stand for our daily obsession with social media. <laughs> like how could you even begin to think that at the time? Mm-hmm. So for that reason, and for all those reasons we just mentioned, it's uh, clearly the best movie of the decade. And let's, let's watch it again. That'd be, I love it. Let's just film. Let's just podcast ourselves watching. It. You know what? There, there are certain things that come into it that I don't or that I had sort of forgotten that came up is like, there's the part where Divi Narendra comes in mm-hmm. when he realizes that the Facebook is a thing. Yeah. And he comes into the training room and uh, they're doing their rowing, their yeah. crew. And yeah, he's yeah. like, Mark Zuckerberg yeah. stole our website. Yeah. Yeah. What? Mark Zuckerberg stole our website. <laughs> just the way that he says <laughs> yeah. that. Like yeah. it just, I always, I still say that to this day and it drives my wife nuts. Yeah. Like, I can't Still wait, our website. I can't wait to stand over your shoulder and watch you write us a check. <laughs> God, yeah. fucking great dialogue, man. Oh, yeah, I'm on. I'm on board, Ryan. I mean, I was obviously right behind you with that yep. one. So uh, we're. Yeah, I'm glad we could. Uh, we can. We can have a consensus. We can consense, if that's a word. Yeah. Uh, and really quickly, you want to go through your 11 through 20, if you uh, if, if you have one. I don't really have them in order specifically, but mm-hmm. just some other things that I kind of had to just to kind of get a mindset of where, yeah. else, we were, where else we were going with so this think, decade. Yeah. I think this one, this is where I could probably put baby driver. Mm-hmm. Um, excuse me. Uh, Django unchained as well. Uh, uh, and I'm going to lump the raid and the raid two uh, together yeah, as well. Definitely in my top hundred, definitely a, a tough one to leave off. I think that one went kind of down to the wire. Uh, mm-hmm. the master, mm-hmm. um, I actually really liked, uh, let's see here. Yeah. Oh, and Interstellar. I can yeah. go for Interstellar as well. And, um, I mean, and there's a there's a big tie for a lot of the other ones, really. Yeah. Like, there's just Annihilation, mm-hmm. um, speaking of Alex Garland. Right. So, Spider-Verse, Beale Street, stuff Spider-verse, like that. So, I mean, yeah. there, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of 11th place, specifically. So, mm-hmm. I think those are some ones that uh, were tough cuts for me. Yeah. In the end. Yeah, I, I I did do an eleven through twenty, and is mostly familiar names. Like I had Roma at eleven, I had uh, Malik's The Tree of Life at number twelve, which I think is my number one movie of twenty eleven. Uh, 
uh, Parasite at number 13. So the uh, Oh, it made it? Yeah, the it actually did make it. I forgot how high I had ranked it, yeah. Parasite number 13 and uh, Unprofit, the, uh, the French gangster prison drama from 2009, released 2010, American. Uh, just a, a fascinating and weirdly supernatural spin on the uh, the prison drama. Mm-hmm. Uh, following that, I had Cold War um, from Paul Palakowski, uh, which was uh, a film from last year that uh, we both championed. Mm-hmm. After that, I had It Follows. Uh, oh, a horror. Yeah, the highest showing for a horror movie this year. That movie still freaks the fuck out of me. Yeah, it's so scary. <laughs> a horror movie where the villain is Depth of Field. <laughs> uh, after that, we have uh, Take Shelter, uh, the Michael Shannon um, movie that not enough people saw, and I still feel like it's, uh, it will get its due someday. And then 127 Hours, my number one film from 2010, which I still love. Love that movie. Uh, Moneyball from Bennett Miller. Yeah, I, I had that on there 19. too. That was a tough cut. May, also. Maybe one of the movies I rewatched the most in the last ten years. Huh. I just find endless fascination with that one, and the uh, the act of killing. From, oh God! Yeah, from 2013, <laughs> which as a cinematic experience is is is, is very is very tough to yeah. encapsulate in in any kind of uh, resonance that does it justice. So that's kind of where I was going, 11 through 20. Wow, I can't believe it. But we're here. We did the top 10 of the year and the top 10 of the decade in one day. And uh, I don't know about you, but I think I need a drink. Do you have <laughs> drinks here? Because yeah, I can, we could have uh, a beer. Crack probably. a few beers yeah, open sure. and, uh, and reminisce on the decade that Definitely. was. Definitely. I think you'll do that off mic. But, uh, we'll do it but off yeah. mic. So, uh, yeah, we hope you've enjoyed this this trip down decade mm-hmm. lane, I guess. deep dive we've ever done there, on, on mics. There was, uh, there was twists and turns. There was some grouping together of films i certainly learned a lot i hope you learned a lot as well most of all there was just great cinema and we've embarked on a new decade and we will see what it bringeth absolutely and again you can get in touch with the show at mce podnet on twitters and the instagrams clayton i heard you have a letterboxd account yeah i uh, do my my daily and yearly film tracking and uh, mini reviews on letterboxd at uh, at clay r shank you can find me there awesome so if you want to hear us see us listen to us anything in between our next podcast you can go there and uh for ryan and clayton Have a good decade? (laughs) Have a great decade. Hopefully, Hopefully we'll be doing this again in another 10 years. I agree. See ya.